Well, last week we took one of the a communion uh, break because uh, as we've when we've been taking um, communion Sunday and focusing on the Lord's table and what that means, we're going to get back now into our study of the Tabernacle of Moses, which of course is really part of our study of worship and what the Word of God teaches us uh, of God's side of worship. I was talking to some of the staff this week, and so often we think of worship, and this is really what, why we're taking so long to do this, and we'll take a while still, because we're learning to, we're t- we're learning to take our, change our focus from whatever it is we thought worship was to what God means by it. And the root of all that is to get our eyes off of everything else but Him. Because worship is our eyes on Him. So much of what we think about, so much of what we sing about, so much of what we look for is what, this, what we've received and what God's done for us, and those are true and valid. But worship isn't about what God's done for us. Worship isn't even really about what God's done. Worship is about who He is. But in order to get there, we've got to begin to take our eyes off of ourselves and begin to get our eyes on God. And that really bottom line is what this whole study has been for, is for all of us to begin to stop thinking about ourselves and to start thinking about why we come to church and begin to think in God's terms about why He's called us to come to church, what God wants out of this time we have together. Because God wants something, if, and if we begin to look at what, all I know is if we begin to come with a heart, I want to satisfy what you want today, then you watch what He'll begin to do. You watch what He'll begin to do. You'll never get off track if that becomes your motive. So we've been looking at, of course, our key scriptures are in John chapter 4, Jesus and the woman at the well, and we're looking from the point of view that here's a woman that comes just to draw water, her everyday things, her own expectations were very limited, which is what a lot of people come to church with, very limited expectations, and have their natural needs taken care of, they want to feel better, whatever it is. But she doesn't understand that she has an opportunity to have an encounter with the living God, with Christ in the flesh. And his whole working with her is to begin to change her focus off of the natural onto ultimately onto who it is that she is talking with. And that integrates into what we do on Sunday morning. And so we see that she, she, Jesus begins to talk to her and say, ultimately, if you knew who it was that you were talking to, you would recognize me and ask things of me, and I would give you eternal things, whereas you're looking for natural things. And we saw that he spent some time just dealing with her natural life, a preparation. We've looked at a preparation for worship because she had to get some things right in her life. She had to face where she was and the need that she had for him. And then her response was she went to tell people, and she talks to him about worship. And the scripture that we're down in, I think it's like verse 23 or 24, where she gets into the spirit, into debate with him, or she thinks she, you never got into a debate with Jesus. You asked questions, and he answered them, or he told you what the truth was. She got into this discussion with him about where the right way to worship was, right place to worship. And Jesus says there's coming a day, and now is, when true worshipers will worship not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but true worshipers, which is what we're learning to be, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we'll talk about that a little further on in our study. But the thing we're looking at now is Jesus goes on to say, and my Father longs for, desires, is seeking such to worship Him. And so we've been spending these few weeks looking at this part of this, these, this scene where Jesus is telling us 
that the Father has a desire of His heart. So when we come together, it's not just what we get out of it. Well, that was a nice message. Well, I enjoyed the music today. I got to see some friends. I got my need met. You know, God met my need this way. That's what we get out of it, and that's fine. That's, we need to do that. But there's another level of maturing where we begin to look at what does He want? What does He get out of this? And what we're looking at is scriptures and a pattern in the Bible where from God's point of view, we're looking at His deep inner longing for us to worship Him, for us to have an experience and an encounter with Him, for Him to be real, for, for us to be, Him to be real to us and for us to be real to Him. So we went back and saw that this, is, this whole idea of worship this whole idea is God's idea from the beginning. That when He created the man in the beginning and the woman, that He created them to fellowship with, to be with, to know Him. They had no restrictions. They could look at Him face to face and communicate with Him mouth to mouth. And He could touch them and they could touch Him. Why? Because there was no sin in them. They were perfectly obedient. They were perfectly His creation. God only makes things perfectly. It's what we do with it and what sin does with it that gets us where we are today. And then we saw their rebellion, that they took things into their own hands and began to do things for themselves and for their own motives and try to lift themselves up to be equal with God somehow. And we saw the vastness of that fall, of that separation. And then we've been talking about the fact that the entire Bible is really God's story of what He has done and is doing to restore that original communion, that original face-to-face encounter, that original experience. And this, the, one of the side lessons of this is how devastating sin is to this relationship. Because all these efforts that we see that God has to take man through are entirely because of sin. And what we're going to see today and what we're seeing in the study of the tabernacle is an example of that. So we looked at that and we looked at the first thing that God did to do this was He created a people for Himself. He didn't choose a people out of the peoples of the world. He chose to create a people for himself that he would have a special relationship with. And out of that relationship, God could begin to reveal what he was like, a God of covenant, a God of relationship, a God who was dependable, a God who cares, a God who was holding nothing back, a God that was loving and gracious and generous, but also a God that was holy and a God that was righteous. And so God chose a man, Abram, and he entered into a covenant with that man. And through that covenant, God provided a child when he was too old and his wife was barren to produce children. God supernaturally created this nation to be in covenant with him. Then we saw that they went into Egypt for protection, for provision during a troubled famine. They overstayed their need to be there and they ended up in bondage to Egypt. And when they cried out, God had a deliverer, Moses prepared. And we're looking at God's bringing them out of that place, brings them into, into the wilderness of Sinai in order to take them to a land called the Promised Land. God could have taken them there in a matter of weeks, but we see from the scriptures that God said, I can't take them that way because I know if they go that way, I know what they're like. They're going to see the Canaanites, and when they see the Canaanites, they're going to panic, and they're going to run back to Egypt. So we took comfort from that to see that God knows us. He knows our nature. He knows what we're like, and He meets us where we are because His goal is to get us where He wants to get us, which is in that union and that fellowship with Him. So we bring that over to where we are. That means God's meeting us where we are. He's drawing us. He's wooing us. He's opening our eyes to these things. And every, just about every week I get comments from people. I'm getting it. I'm seeing it. I'm beginning to see something. So if you don't see it and you don't get it yet, be patient. God's working. God's working. God's working. 
God's working. It's not something you have to get. It's something He has to show us. And He's in the process of doing that. He knew how to get them there. So He brought them into the wilderness. He brought them into the wilderness of Sinai. And we saw in Exodus 19 that his purpose was God came down on Mount Sinai and he told Moses, draw the people up around the base of the mountain because I want to come down and I want to meet with my people. And that's really the key. That's what God wants to every time we open the doors here. God wants to come and meet with his people, you and me, his children. He wants to meet with us, not just through our understanding, not just through our singing, but he wants to have an encounter with us, an experience with us that changes us and where he deposits things in us. You read through examples in the Bible of people that have an actual encounter with God or with someone on God. It changes them. They're never the same. It's what changed Paul. It's what changed Peter. It's what changed so many people in the Bible. It changed Moses. It took Moses from a weak man to a, to a, to a deliverer. It changed Stephen. It changed everybody that's changed was changed because they had an, an actual encounter with the living God, which tells you, first of all, he's real. Not a concept, not an idea. He's more real than that seat you're sitting in. He's more real than the problems you're dealing with. He's more real than your body. He's more real than the sky. He's more real than the earth. He's more real than anything that you can see, feel, touch, or hear, or taste. He's more real. But that's a concept to us until you have an experience with the real God. An experience with Him. And then the second thing it does is it shows us what He's like. That He's here, He cares, He's involved in our lives. We don't have time to get into it, but that's what the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are. If you look in 1 Corinthians 12, they're manifestations of the Spirit of God. They're God's Spirit manifesting Himself, making Himself known that He's there and something about Him. So that's what we've been looking at. So now in the, in the wilderness, the next thing God does while He has Moses on the mountain is He says, here's what I want you to do. He said, I'm going to give you a plan, not in writing, but I'm going to deposit in you a plan for a, a, a tabernacle, a dwelling place, so that when you build this, I can come down and dwell in your camp, in the middle of your camp. And this tabernacle is known as the tabernacle of Moses. Tabernacle just means a sanctuary, a dwelling place. Tabernacle Moses that was used by God in the wilderness. And we began to look at this several weeks ago. So go with me to, Gen- to Exodus, Exodus 25, and we'll pick up here, just kind of remind you of this. And then we're going to get in today to what it's all about. On the mountain, chapter 25 of Exodus, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering to me. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take an offering. And this is the offering that you should take from them. He goes through the materials that they had. Down in verse 8, And they do this, and let them make for me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a dwelling place. Look at this, that I may dwell among them. This is God's idea, not Moses's. According to all that I shall show you, this is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings. Just so shall you make it. We're going to stop right there for a moment. We'll get back to this, the next verses in a few minutes. What God showed him was to build to construct a tent and a series of tents. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go to this slideshow that we did. And this is, again, an overview of it. There's a wall that goes around the outside. It's made of white linen material, and it separates the rest of the camp from the courtyard. Courtyard's got a dirt floor, no ceiling. 
and only the priests, only the priests and the tribe of Levi could go inside because they ministered to the Lord. You'll see there's a gate, there's a veil at the front, and people would bring their offerings, and the priests would inspect them. Then you see the next thing is this brazen altar, and they would burn the sacrifices there, and there were different ways that they would burn them. And that represents the cross. All of this represents part of the plan of salvation, the intense heat that was there. Because you couldn't go anywhere else or do anything else in this tabernacle until the sin was paid for. The next thing that was behind it is called the laver. It was a bowl. These were all made of brass out there. Brass, acacia wood covered with brass. That bowl was filled with water and there were mirrors in the bottom. And that's called the laver. And they would wash the priests when they were finished with the, with, the, with the sacrifice would wash in there. And then you see there's another building that's behind this. Here's a, just an overview looking down from it. And this was placed in the center of the, uh, of the camp. And then... Here's one with the, that tells you the things that are in it, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. What we began to look at uh, last time was we looked at the tent itself. This is the, actually the tabernacle. It was a series of, of, of uh, curtains, series of materials that were laid over it, five different ones, ranging from badger skin on the outside down to the incredible material that's on the inside that had purple and scarlet uh, uh, thread woven in among it. And the most astounding one was one of the threads was literally pure gold thread woven among it. There's a veil at the front of it. And what a veil or a curtain represents, it's a barrier as to separating who can go inside and who cannot go inside. We saw that inside that first room, we're going to go back to this, that first room, which is what you see, the bigger room, uh, was called the holy place. And there were three articles in that holy place. On the left-hand side, there was a lampstand. On the right-hand side was a table of showbread. And in the very end of it is an altar of incense. We saw the table of showbread. I'm going to... This is just... Here we go. This isn't working right. Here we go. It's, this is an artist's rendering of it. It was... Everything in this side, in the side of this tabernacle is gold. The walls are gold. Excuse me. The walls are all gold. The floor is dirt. The ceiling is this beautiful tapestry that I was just talking about. And in there is this table which is made of acacia wood covered with gold. Gold represents deity. The brass that's out in the courtyard represents sin that's judged. This is a very different room. Only the priest, the, the high priest and his sons, those were the priests, could go in this room. And they would go in this room on the Sabbath. And on this table were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, one for each of the trail tribes of Israel. Here's just a, kind of an artist's picture of it. Of course, we don't have any actual pictures. On the left-hand side going in, we looked at the golden candle stick, or the candle, yeah, the candlestick. This was made of one piece of solid gold hammered out by an artisan. And it had six, uh, six bowls and one in the middle. So there were seven, seven, seven bowls of oil in wick. And there was a special formula God gave them for this. And, and then we saw that there was this altar of incense, which was also gold, wood overlaid with gold. And on this burned a coal from off of the fire of the brazen altar covered with a special incense so there was a beautiful aroma, and that will become important to us today. And when we ended last time, we went back and looked at this candle because inside this room, outside in the courtyard, it's lit up by natural light, what you can see, by your natural senses. And so much of the church is out in that courtyard. 
Their relationship with God and the things of God is all through their natural senses. They walk by sight. They walk by how things feel. They walk by how things look. They determine what, tr- what is true by what their senses tell them. But all that goes on in the courtyard, the, 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 the cross, the altar, of the brazen altar, which is the cross, and the laver, which is, represents the washing of the water of the word, word, is to prepare you to come into this room, which is where the worship takes place the beginning of worship. We saw talk last time, this inner room is only lit up by the light that comes from this candlestick. And, and it represents the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Everything in this room exists, it's in there, but the only way you can see it is because of the light that comes from this candlestick. And we ended by looking at Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, which says talking about what God's done for us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love Him. But they're revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So His role, one of His roles, is to open our spiritual eyes to see what God has done for us in the Spirit. And this becomes very important for worship because Jesus said, true worshipers can only worship Him in spirit spirit and in truth because God is a spirit. So we don't worship God with our natural senses. We don't worship God with our eye, things our eyes can see and our ears can hear. The music is wonderful. The, all the sounds we make are wonderful, but all those are outer court things. They're designed to bring us to a place where there's a spirit-to-spirit communion with Him, and that's where true worship takes place. But it requires the anointing. It requires the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It requires His his work, His unique work to help us to see things that our natural senses can't see. But we ended last time by telling you, none of that is what this was all about. All of this was to prepare for the next room. And that's down to the incredible material that's on the inside that had purple and scarlet uh, uh, thread woven in among it. And the most astounding one was one of the threads was literally pure gold thread woven among it. There's a veil at the front of it. And what a veil or a curtain represents, it's a barrier as to separating who can go inside and who cannot go inside. We saw that inside that first room, we're going to go back to this, that first room, which is what you see, the bigger room, uh, it was called the holy place. And there were three articles in that holy place. On the left-hand side, there was a lampstand. On the right-hand side was a table of showbread. And in the very end of it is an altar of incense. We saw the table of showbread. I'm going to... This is just... Here we go. This isn't working right. Here we go. It's, this is an artist's rendering of it. It was... Everything in this side, in this, side this tabernacle, is gold. The walls are gold... Excuse me, the walls are all gold. The floor's dirt. The ceiling is this beautiful tapestry that I was just talking about. And in there is this table, which is made of acacia wood covered with gold. Gold represents deity. The brass that's out in the courtyard represents sin that's judged. This is a very different room. Only the priest, the, the high priest and his sons, those were the priests, could go in this room. And they would go in this room on the Sabbath. And on this table were 12 loaves of unleavened bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Here's just a kind of an artist's picture of it. Of course, we don't have any actual pictures. On the left-hand side going in, we looked at the golden candle stick, or the candle, yeah, the candlestick. This was made of one piece of solid gold hammered out by an artisan. And it had six, uh, six bowls and one in the middle, so there were seven, seven, seven bowls of oil and wick, and there was a special formula God gave them for this. And, and then we saw that there was this altar of incense, which was also gold, wood overlaid with gold. And on this burned a coal from off of the fire of the brazen altar covered with a special incense so there was a beautiful aroma, and that will become important to us today. And when we ended last time, we went back and looked at this candle because inside this room, outside in the courtyard, it's lit up by natural light, what you can see, by your natural senses. And so much of the church is out in that courtyard. Their relationship with God and the things of God is all through their natural senses. They walk by sight. They walk by how things feel. They walk by how things look. They determine what, tr- what is true by what their senses tell them. But all that goes on in the courtyard, the, 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 the cross, the altar, of the brazen altar, which is the cross, and the laver, which is, represents the washing of the water of the word, word, is to prepare you to come into this room, which is where the worship takes place the beginning of worship. We saw talk last time, this inner room is only lit up by the light that comes from this candlestick. And, and it represents the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Everything in this room exists, it's in there, but the only way you can see it is because of the light that comes from this candlestick. And we ended by looking at Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, which says, talking about what God's done for us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love Him. But they're revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So His role, one of His roles, is to open our spiritual eyes to see what God has done for us in the Spirit. And this becomes very important for worship because Jesus said true worshipers can only worship Him in spirit spirit and in truth because God is a spirit. So we don't worship God with our natural senses. We don't worship God with our eye, things our eyes can see and our ears can hear. The music is wonderful. The, all the sounds we make are wonderful, but all those are outer court things. They're designed to bring us to a place where there's a spirit-to-spirit communion with Him, and that's where true worship takes place. But it requires the anointing. It requires the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It requires His his work, His unique work to help us to see things that our natural senses can't see. But we ended last time by telling you, none of that is what this was all about. All of this was to prepare for the next room. And that's the room we're going to look at today. I want to go back a few slides here. For some reason, this came up smaller today. I want to look at this room on the left. See the smaller room on the left? We're talking about the inner rectangle. And that's the Holy of Holies. The other three things, the other room has the table of showbread on the, for us on the top, the lampstand on the bottom, the altar of incense on the left. And the altar of incense represented the prayers 
and the worship of the saints going up because it was a sweet-smelling aroma. Now on the left-hand side, there's a curtain also just like the curtain that's at the beginning of this in the outside of the holy place. And the room that we're going to go into today is called the Holy of Holies. And in this room, there's only one article of furniture, and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we're going to look at today. So go with me back into Exodus 25, and we're going to begin to read there. While you're doing that, let me tell you a little bit about this room. This room's square. It's 15 feet by 15 feet. And again, the floor's dirt. The walls are also gold. Now, I can't begin to imagine how beautiful it must have been in the holy place because you've got this beautiful golden light coming off of this golden lampstand and it's reflecting off of the gold, solid gold walls on solid gold furniture. The beauty of that must have been amazing. But this room's different. The entrance into this room is another veil or curtain also made of that beautiful tapestry of purple and scarlet and gold. And this also, each of these purple and scarlet and gold tapestries, all of those colors and materials represent some aspect of Christ, which we don't have time to get into. His humanity, His deity, His holiness, His purity, and the blood sacrifice, all of those are represented by those colors and those materials. So that's what this represents before you can go in here. This also has, wall, has three walls that are gold because it's part of the same structure. It also has a dirt floor, and the ceiling is the same tapestry, that same beautiful tapestry. The only thing in this room, there's no, nat, there's no light at all. There's no candlestick. There's no, there's no opening for the sky to shine down. It is a completely dark room, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There's one article in this room. And we're going to read God's instructions in verse 10. And you shall make an ark. Ark just means a container, a box or a container. Moses, uh, God told Noah to build what? An ark. So this isn't a boat. And an ark is not necessarily a boat. The word ark actually means a container, something to contain something. And what a container does is it holds it together and it protects it from the outside. So the ark that Moses built held his family and all the animals, kept them together safe and secure, and also protected it from what was on the outside. And this is an ark, except this is not a boat. This is a box. And we'll see how it's made. And you shall make an ark of acacia wood, that same wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, so it's a rectangle, and a cubit and a half its height. A cubit's about, an, about 18 inches. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold all around, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and you shall put in its four on its four corners, two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark, and the ark that the ark may be carried about it. So this ark we're going to see represents things about God that man could not touch. So there had to be poles to carry it, because 
Everything in this tabernacle has to be portable because the camp would move from time to time as God moved, the camp moved with it. So when the God began to move, they would have to take all these things apart and they had people that were assigned of Levites to maintain them and to carry them. And we'll talk down the road about somebody that didn't pay attention to the rules and it cost him his life. Okay. Verse 16. Verse 15. The pole shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Now, the testimony refers, and this is called the Ark of the Testimony, it's called the Tabernacle of Testimony sometimes. A testimony means saying something. We had several weeks ago on a Wednesday night before Thanksgiving was Testimony Night. It was where people stood up and said something. They, they testified. They gave words out about something. Well, God doesn't stand up and give testimony about what we've done for Him or what He's done. The testimony of God are the commandments that he gave to Moses on, on this mountain that he's on giving him this instruction right now. And if you... He said, I'm going to give you the testimony. And what God did was God wrote... God wrote with the finger of his hand his own words in his own finger writing, not handwriting... <laughs> on a stone, and Moses had the actual, not, this is, this is the God's Word, but it's in ink and paper. This was God's handwriting. You can't get any more the source of God than either His spoken Word or His handwriting. What happens is, when God finishes giving Moses this instructions, He says, you got a problem in the camp. You better go down and take care of it. Because what they were doing in the camp was violating the first one of these commandments. And Moses is so angry, he takes the tablets of stone, written, you talk about a relic. with God's own handwriting on it, his own words. And Moses was so angry, he took them and he threw them down and broke them because they had just broken them. And so when God brings Moses back up again to give him the completion of the, test of, of the tabernacle, he says, I'm going to write them for you again. And so what he's saying here, this is what I want you to get, Remember what gold represents. Gold represents pure deity. The wood that it covers it represents humanity. So you've got human wood covered by pure gold, which represents God. And that's what Jesus is. He is all man and He is all God. And this is a box into which God says, put the literal words that I have written for you on stone. The Word of God. 
in all that... See, we read God's Word and it tells us things we should do and not do. And we forget the authority that is in God's Word. The Bible tells us what the authority is. It says that all things were created by the Word and are held together. Are held, not just created, but they were held together. They're, so they're still up there. The stars that the scientists are measuring and studying, they're held there by the power of that initial word that said, let there be. Think about that. God doesn't have to get up every day and says, continue to be. Continue to be. Continue to be. This is tiring. Continue to be. No, He just said, once. And He didn't have to yell and scream. He said, let there be light. He created the stars and the firmament and separated them with His words. And Hebrews 11 says, they're still held together. By the word of His power, God's words don't predict what's going to happen. God's words make them happen. So when God says, thou shalt not, those words produce something. Because if thou shalt, when thou shalt not, <laughs> there's a consequence. Not because God's gotten mad, because you've, it's, like, it's like the electricity that's in the walls in your home. If you stick your finger in there, you're going to get consequences to it because you're crossing the purpose of a power. You're, you're, you're interfering with a power that was issued for a purpose and you're misusing that purpose. In the same way, when you violate His words, I mean the absolute power of His words, without any covering, without any restraint, when you have come face to face with the power of His word, something has to give and it's not His word. So if you decide to get into a fight with the electricity in your plug... Guess who's going to win? The greater power, which is that electricity. See, the Word of God has gotten so watered down to us that we think it's God's suggestions. Or, all right, God's commandments. But what does that mean? It's the Word of God, the words off of God's lips are absolute power to do what he said. Man's the only thing that can disobey a command of God. Nature can't. It obeyed Jesus when he spoke, didn't it? Storm stopped. People could walk on water. Nothing stopped him. Why? It was all under his authority of his word. The only thing that's not under the absolute authority of God's Word, is the one being He gave independent will to. And that's you and me. We have the choice of what authority His Word has in our lives. So these tablets are the Word of God. With all of its power, all of its righteousness, all of its holiness, in a physical tangible form in Moses' hands. And God says, I want you to put that in the box. 
If you read Hebrews, you'll see there's some other things that were in the box. The box also was to have in it a golden pot, because gold represents God, containing pieces of the manna that God provided for them supernaturally every day. And that manna was their bread that sustained their life. And it came every day. They had to trust God for it. They had to learn to walk by faith for that bread to feed them every day. And Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. If you want to live in the kingdom of God, you have to eat me. And they thought it was cannibalism he was teaching. He says, no, you have to live on me. You have to sustain yourself on me because I provide the spiritual food. I provide the spiritual strength. I provide the spiritual nourishment. I am the bread of life. And that's what that represents. There was another item that was in there, apparently, and that was Aaron's rod that budded, which refers to an incident where there was a rebellion of Korah who decided that they could, he could do a better job of leading than the person God appointed. And 250 of the leaders stood up with him to go and take over. And Moses never defended himself. If you're in leadership, realize this, you never, and God's put you there, you never have to defend yourself. Every time somebody challenged Moses' leadership, he fell on his face to intercede for them because he knew what God was going to do. His sister and brother-in-law rose up against him and said, well, you know, God speaks to us too. Moses immediately went on his face, says, God, have mercy upon them. And leprosy broke out on Miriam. And God, Moses had to plead for her. Well, this is Korah leads a rebellion. And Moses says, God, he just declared, if, if, if I, God has not chosen me, then these people that have rebelled will die naturally. But if God's chosen me, they're not going to die a natural death. Well, God chose him, and what happened is the ground opened up and swallowed them in one moment. Moses pled for them. He, he interceded for them. And so, right after this rebellion, people are wondering, well, who's really, who is God appointed and who is God not appointed? So God tells Moses now, God's established Moses' leadership. Now he's got Aaron as the high priest. So God wants to establish Aaron's, that Aaron's been called by him. So he tells them to t- take each one of the tribes and to cut a stick of an almond tree or whatever bush it is to cut a stick and engrave on that stick the name of the tribe. And he told Aaron to take all of those 12 sticks. They're dead wood. They've been cut. And to take them and put them in before the Ark of the Covenant and come back tomorrow and see what's happened. And when when Aaron came back, it was Aaron and Moses, I forgot which, came back, there were 11 sticks that looked exactly like the ones that he put in there. But the stick that had Levi, the tribe of Levi from which Aaron came, was blossoming almond buds. So from a dead stick, in the presence of this ark, God produced life out of a dead stick. And that represents the resurrection power of God. Abram had a sense of that because it says in Romans chapter 4, that the God that made the promise to him, he knew was a God who can raise the dead and a God who can call things into existence that never existed before. That's the power of God's word. That's what Abraham's faith was in. So those two other items, those three items are in there. 
All right. Let's look at the next thing. So you've got a box that has a floor to it and four sides. Wood covered with gold. These three items are in there. Let's take a look. Whoops. Let's just take a look. Go through here these slides. Now, there's more there than that. You see the poles. There's a lid that went on it. This lid was called the mercy seat. Let's read on. Verse 17, Exodus 25, 17. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now stop there a second. I used to get hung up on the word seat because my idea of a seat is the thing you're sitting in. But a seat also means how something fits in there. I'm not a plumber and I had one effort to try to do plumbing and my wife will tell you what a disaster that was and what it cost me just to try to fix a little dripping faucet. I had to, I don't want to go into it. <laughs> but what they need you to do, if I understand correctly, I know we have some plumbers in here, that, that, that washer has to properly sit in there in the opening, has to be seated in there. That's the sense of this word seat. Something that fits as a lid on top. Now let's read what this was like. And you shall make a mercy seat or covering of pure gold. Now whereas the box had wood covered with gold, this was like the candlestick. It's pure gold. Two and a half cubits by its length and a cubit and a half by its width. So it covers the opening of the lid. And you shall make two cherubim, angels, of gold, hammered work out of a single piece of gold with a delicate hammer hammering these things out. And you shall make, make them at the ends of the mercy seat. You'll see them there. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it and one piece, with, uh, one piece of the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. So they're bent forward like this. You can see it up there. They're bent forward like this with their wings touching. Here's another attempt to show what it looks like. Verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And look at verse 22, And there I will meet with you. He didn't meet with them in the holy place outside. That was to give them a taste of it. He didn't meet them with them out in the courtyard. He couldn't meet with them in the courtyard because it wasn't holy. He couldn't meet with them inside the, inside the holy place. This is the place God has designated that He is going to meet with the high priest and also He will meet with Moses. I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Well, He is the Word. He is the resurrection. And He is life. 
So he represents all those things. You ready for this? Oh, this is good. The box contains the Word of God with all its power, all its righteousness. We've seen that when people cross it, they die. We're going to see if we, we'll get to there. In Leviticus, he tells the high priest what, how to do this. And he says, if you don't do this the right way, you die on the spot. If you do one thing wrong, you die immediately. Not because God's angry, because you've stuck your finger, you didn't handle the electricity correctly. The power of that word, of the righteousness and the holiness of God, is not a thing to be trifled with. And so what God has in this box is exactly that. The absolute authority and righteousness and holiness of God in His Word, in His commandments. Thou shalt not do these things. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not just little things on your, on your mantelpiece or on your dashboard, but things in your life that are idols to you that are more important than God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's not just cursing, that's using His word name without the authority of His name behind it. Thou shalt not... I mean, Jesus goes through some of these and saying, you know, in the Old Testament it was said, you know, if you do these things, you violate it. But I'm telling you the heart of it is, if you do them in your heart, you violated them. And the Word says, who can stand with these? So if that's what's in this room, nobody can ever go in there. So what does God cover it with? He covers it with the mercy seat. It's still there. The authority and the requirements and the power of His Word, it's there, but the effect of it on the man that would come in is shielded by a seat called the mercy seat. And it's not made of wood covered with gold. It's made of pure gold, pure deity. Are you ready for this? I'm going to show you something I didn't see until this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. Oh! Hebrews chapter 4. Oh. Beginning of chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're talking about entering into His rest, what He's done for us. Not trying to fulfill the law, not trying to keep the law, but entering into the grace that He's paid for for us. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest any of you should fall according to the same example of disobedience which the children of Israel did. Look at this. For the Word of God is living and powerful. It's what? It's alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? Piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God cuts through into our intentions and our hearts. It cuts through all the excuses. It cuts through everything in our life and cuts right down with what? The righteous requirement of God. 
It's a sharp two-edged sword. It's not a comforting sword. It's not to soothe you and make you feel better. It's to cut right through what's wrong and cut right to the heart of your intentions and your heart. Look at the next verse. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we're going to have to give an account. That's the righteousness of God. And the Word is the one that reveals His righteousness. The Word is the one that delivers His righteous requirement. The Word is the one that convicts and brings that in. Now look at verse 14. But seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in all points has been tempted as we are without sin. Let us therefore... Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what? Grace that we may obtain what? Mercy. What's the name of this seat? The mercy seat. That we may obtain grace and find mercy and find grace. When? In time of need. When that word that cuts into you, when that word that bears you open, when that word that convicts you and says you've blown it, you've fallen short, you don't measure up, when that word has cut through the righteousness of God's commandments and His requirements has opened us up, now what do we do? We come to this mercy seat because the power and the punishment, the power and the punishment for what we've done has been covered over by mercy. And we have a merciful and faithful high priest that stands between us and the righteous judgment of those tablets that are inside the box. Woo! Which is why it says in Hebrews, again over in chapter 9, we are to come boldly. They couldn't do that. There was a curtain in the way. And the high priest, if he didn't do it correctly on the right day, died on the spot. Why? Because the mercy hadn't been paid for. They were walking out a rehearsal of what you and I live in. Let's go over quickly in the time we have left to Leviticus 16. Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the Holy of Holies inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. By the way, the outward courtyard was illuminated by what? The natural light of what people could see. The holy of the holy place was illuminated by what? 
the golden candlestick, which represented the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. There was no sunlight in this room, and there's no candlestick in this room. So what lit this room up? The glory of God himself. The book of Revelation says at the end, when the new Jerusalem comes down, it's not going to be lit by the sun. It's not going to be lit by candlelight. Are you ready for this? It's going to be illuminated by the glory that shines from the face of God himself. The high priest could only come in one day a year. He had to take the priestly robes off, put on white linen, breeches and white linen tunic. And he had to go out to the altar. He had to choose two rams and by lot choose which one was going to sacrifice and which one he was going to use as a scapegoat. I'll explain that in a minute. He would sacrifice the lamb of the Lord, was one of them is called. Take, excuse me, he had to take a bull first. And he had to sacrifice the bull for his own sins and for the sins of his family sprinkled that on the altar. Then he would go back out and he would take the, the, the ram, the, 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 the goat, and he would, he would sacrifice that goat. He would take that blood in and he would pick up a coal off of the altar of incense and he would go in and he would spread that incense all over the Ark of the Covenant as a protection, it says, because, of, because God says, because I'm in there. So the prayers and the worship that that represents allows us to come into the presence of God, allows us to come into His glory. Then He would sprinkle the blood for the sins of the people on the, on the mercy seat because the mercy can only come, the mercy can only come because there was a sacrifice out of the brazen altar. See, God's mercy on you and me is not because He just felt kindly towards us. See, that's what we think sometimes. We mistake God's mercy for what we do with our kids is, well, you know, I'm going to be nice to them today. I'm just kind of going to let them get away with it. I'm going to, yeah, I know they meant well. I know that they did this. You know, I know. I love them, but we're just going to not be so tough on them today. And because that's what we tend to be like with people, we assume that's what God's like. But if he does that, he's compromised his righteousness. So here's the challenge God has. How is he going to stay holy and righteous and still become a father to a bunch of people like you and me? I mean, let's be honest. People like you and me that have a hard time walking straight before Him for too long a time. We're getting better, but all you've got to do is violate it once. All the high priest had to do is miss it once. He didn't get a second chance next year. It was over. See, that's what righteousness is. There's no second chances. It's it. It's over. You stick your finger in that light socket... There's no second chance unless you're just very fortunate. So people tend to think that mercy means God just kind of decided to look the other way. If he did that, he's no longer God. He's no longer righteous. He's violated his own standards. So what's he's got to do? How's he going to show mercy and yet still be righteous? There was only one way, and it was so It was so amazing that the Bible says Satan couldn't figure it out because he fell into the trap. Because the only way out of this was that that price had to be paid 
by someone dying in our place that had not committed sin. And the only one that qualified was his son. So that mercy seat, the mercy that that high priest has for us, comes at the cost of his life, of his blood. So blood had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat because the only legal way that mercy seat could be there is because it was covered with blood. And then the high priest would come back out after having done that. He would take the other goat and he would lay his hands on the other goat. This was the only thing everybody in the camp could see. He would lay his hands on the other goat. He would speak the sins of the nation on that goat and they would send the goat out. It was called the scapegoat. And it would bear their sins out into the wilderness never to be seen again. Once a year, every year they had to do it. But Hebrews 9 and 10 says that Christ came. Christ came bearing a blood that was infinitely more valuable than the blood of bulls and goats. And because His blood, His life was infinitely more valuable than the blood of bulls and goats, He only had to do it once for all time. Why did God do that? Why did God do that? Let's close here with going back into Exodus chapter 40, the very end. Why did God do all that? Verse 33. Exodus 40:33 right at the end. And he raised up the court all around that's the outer tabernacle and the altar hung the screen at the court gate and so Moses finished the work. When he finished the work the cloud the Shekinah glory cloud of God the presence of God the cloud that was on the top of the mountain the cloud that Mount Moses had gone up to the cloud covered the tabernacle of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of the meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward on all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day when the cloud was taken up. For the, cloud, for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and a fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Why did God do this? Because from back at the beginning with his first man, his heart's desire, his passion was to dwell among this man that he had made. He created a people in Abraham so that he could have a relationship with them. And they, they, you know, they didn't obey him. And he, they, get, they get into bondage. And now God's finally gotten them out of bondage. He's gotten them out of the world system. He's gotten them out of Pharaoh's hands. He's got them free, and he's got them to himself. But he can't just come down and walk among them the way he did back in the garden. Or as we've seen, they'll all die on the spot. 
Even Moses would have died. Moses had to be hidden in the rock in order for God just to pass by him in his absolute glory. So God gives Moses this complex system that we've been looking at and studying over these last few weeks for the ultimate purpose that he could come down and be and live in a limited form in the middle of his people. He couldn't go walk among them. He couldn't touch them. He could only have one man come in one day a year having gone through all this ritual. All of this because of sin. But God was working on a way. In this case, only in a very limited form. But what I want you to see is his passion, his desire to go through all of this so that he could have at least, at least, at least that much of an encounter. You've heard the story, and I'll end with this, of when Anita and I were met, and she lived and went to school in southern Ohio, and I went to school in upstate New York. And we didn't have internet then, and we didn't have FaceTime and cell phones or any of that stuff. We had pen and ink <laughs> and telephones with not unlimited service. <laughs> and, and my passion was to just be with her. And her passion was just to be with me. But something separated us. Her schooling and my schooling and the miles that separate us apart. So we would do whatever we could to make some contact with each other. So I would, I, and you'd have to know me then and now. I wrote to her every day. She wrote back to me every day. I'd save my money so I'd have enough money to pay for a phone call like once a week or once a month. And then I'd really save it up so I had enough money to get in my car and pay for gas and drive out there 800 miles just to go out there and come back. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Because of my passion to be with her. It was only limited at that point. Oh, but I looked forward to the day. I looked forward to the day when she and I would stand before the God and and pledge our lives to each other. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, I was talking about the other day, the first time we came back to our apartment for the very first night, and I looked at her, and I said, do you realize I never have to say goodbye to you again? I never have to take you back to that dorm again. I never have to have where I'm going separate me from you because we're now going to go through this together. What motivated me to do that? What motivated her is the desire for each other. What we're looking at yet, God's not able to do what he wants to do yet. His desire is not satisfied yet here in the tabernacle of Moses. But he's taken a step towards it. It's like me being able to phone her and call her and hear her voice. He can now be at least among them and they can be aware of him. And he can, he can be forgiving their sins so that they can at least have some limited form of fellowship. But he's not satisfied with that. We're going to move on to the next step starting next week because there's another level he goes to. There's another level he goes to. But his passion, his desire. See, because there came a time when God brought you out of Egypt and me out of Egypt. He brought you and me out of the world, out of the systems of the world, the way the world thinks. He brought us out of the world. Why did he do that? He brought us out of the world so that he could have us to himself. 
not just on Sunday morning, but all the time. He brought us out of the world so that our sins could be paid for. You know, Jesus didn't go to the cross just so you can go to heaven or I could go to heaven or we don't have to go to hell. That's wonderful. But He did it so He could legally give you His righteousness. Why did He give you His righteousness? So that He could come and live in you. Why could He come and live in you? Because it could begin to satisfy the desire that God has to be in us, to be with us, to be among us. Romans 8 ends with these things. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also, together with Him, freely give us all things that He has? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Certainly not God. He's the one that justified us. Christ Jesus? No, He's the one that died, was raised from the dead, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and is interceding for us. why Paul says at the end, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's been given to us in Christ. Just as I said that night, nothing can ever come to the place where I got to take you back to that dorm and drive another 800 miles. This time, you're going with me. God now never has to say good night to you or goodbye to you or I can only see you one day a year having done just the right things. But God's paid with the precious blood of His Son so that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, He can be dwelling in you so that you can have an experience with Him anytime you choose to enter into the Holy of Holies because you're now the Holy of Holies. And when we come together, how much more is His combined presence here? Next time we'll begin to look at the next stage. I kind of cheated and gave you a little look ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We stand in awe. We stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of your goodness and what you were willing to do to have us. How much you must love us. How much you must want us. How much, how important we must be to you. Lord, as we look through your word and see how you've related to your people before, we begin to glimpse at the desire that you have for us. Father, forgive us for so much of the time when we come together. It's not for these purposes, but for so many other purposes. But we're comforted that you meet us where we are to draw us to where you called us to be. Father, continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. And for that we thank you. Amen.